We're returning to our uh, series in Ephesians. I would encourage you to turn to Ephesians chapter 6, where we are picking up Paul's final section, beginning at verse 10. And we'll come to the reading of the text uh, in, uh, in due course. But it falls a little later this morning than, uh, than it often does. So, uh, let's pray as we begin. Now, Father, our desire today, once again, is to be um, submitted to the truth that you give us here. And for we recognize that apart from your word and the revelation of all that you are for us in Jesus Christ and our, all that we are in our deep and abiding need as sinners is found here. And it's not just wisdom uh, on how to live life, but it's wisdom to know the living and the true God where life is found. And we pray now that you would encourage our hearts as we uh, give ourselves to uh, uh, a certain attentiveness now and that your spirit would carry out his function as our teacher instruct us not simply for our good and joyful ends lord but for your glory and honor for we ask it in jesus name amen i don't have to tell any of you that today uh, marks the 10th anniversary of the anniversary of the attack on the pentagon the world trade center which uh, thousands of american uh, uh, citizens lost their lives. Uh, September 11th, 2001, as you know, marked a, a radical change in life in America. We had never really considered what it was like to be the uh, uh, point of attack of, uh, of a foreign enemy, but we did on that day. And in many respects, it began what is now called the War on Terror, which has continued for the last 10 years in places as far-flung as Iraq and Afghanistan and Somalia and the Philippines and elsewhere. Uh, there are, uh, uh, these are different days than they once were. And yet it's really interesting because the simple fact of the matter is that the terror attacks against the United States uh, came a lot earlier than 10 years ago. They've been going on for decades. Think of Pan Am 103, for instance, or the uh, first attack on the World Trade Center, uh, the bombing of the USS Cole, the truck bombs in, uh, in Tanzania and uh, in Nairobi, Kenya. And those were just the later ones. There were ones in the 60s and the 70s as well. And yet after all of that, nobody was really prepared for the scope and the violence of what happened 10 years ago. In fact, just this morning, I, uh, I heard that there were uh, some 45 uh, terror plots that have actually been foiled within the last few years, some of which you know. I don't have to tell you what they are. And even, even today, this weekend, in Washington and D.C., they're trying to follow up credible uh, threats that they believe uh, still exist. Simple fact of the matter is, is that uh, the enemy who is against us in attacks both great and small continues to wage a relentless warfare against us. And the same is true in our spiritual lives. And that brings us to this text in particular. Because the scriptures teach us that we have an enemy. 
who was named Satan, the devil. Now, as people who believe the scriptures, we we understand that that's exactly what the scriptures teach. From Genesis chapter 3 right on, we know that we have an enemy. At the same time, if the truth be told, if we acknowledge it honestly, as 21st century men and women, we have become so embroiled in the materialistic and mechanistic view of our own culture that functionally we do not operate as if we have a great spiritual enemy. Because our culture doesn't believe in in the spiritual values. They don't believe that God, the infinite personal God of Scripture, exists. There's no room for that in a mechanistic view of things. But the simple fact of the matter is that there is an enemy who hates us and who hates our God. And it's important that we learn to be aware of him all the time. In fact, we can take a lesson, I think, from the uh, ancient falconers. You know, they used to go hunting with these birds of prey, these predators, these, these falcons and these hawks. And they would, they would take them out and, and they, would, they would let those great birds of prey fly up to do their hunting for them. The problem was is that sometimes those birds flew so high that they were lost to the eyesight of the, of the hunter. And you know what they did? They used to take little cages with a bird called a shrike. And they would keep the cage with them while the, the hawk or the falcon was flying, even out of sight, because the shrike knew exactly where that hawk was because it was so afraid of the hawk and so they could just watch the shrike and they could see the movement of the head and the eyes and they could tell where their bird was simply by the reaction of the little one as Christians we we need to develop that same kind of perception That understanding that we have an enemy, as Peter says, one who prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. And keeping our spiritual eyes open to the reality of that is a crucial part of what it means for us to live, if you'll excuse the expression, successful Christian lives. If we're going to come to grips with that spiritual reality, we have to understand what Paul says here. And it begins with the implication, without actually saying it, that we need a God who is strong on our behalf. Bob Dylan once sang a song, if you're that old, the times they are a-changing, and they, they surely are. A hundred years ago, a hundred years ago, there, there existed in evangelicalism in America a fundamentalism that, that erected sort of this artificial barrier against temptation in the world. And the basic thing was that it demonized all forms of alcohol and gambling and car playing and theater going and all of that. You know, you don't drink, smoke, or chew, and you don't go out with girls who do, okay? That was, that was basically the way it was, it was laid out. But that's crumbling everywhere in the evangelical world today. And it's crumbling under the weight of new challenges to our spiritual well-being. 
Just like the internet, for instance. With the click of a mouse, you can see things and go places and be anonymous in ways that 10 years ago were simply unthinkable. Absolutely unthinkable. Moreover, the isolation produced by our culture now, we used to call it cocooning 10 or 15 years ago. And you kind of live in your apartment or your home and you just, you got everything there, all your entertainment, all your news, all your, all your communication, you're comfy, got that strata lounger, and you don't have to go out at all. You can even have your food delivered. You can be as isolated as you want. You can go to a 10,000-seat worship center and not know anybody within 100 feet of you. You can become so removed from other human beings and real, deep, meaningful relationships that you're absolutely alone. At the same time these things are going on, there there are changes in some of the most fundamental structures that we've ever counted on for our spiritual well-being. Things like the church and the family and, and, and education. In fact, they are changing so much that it feels as though it's just shifting right underneath our feet. Divorce in the church is 50%. We live in a state which is the first in the union to recognize homosexual marriage. You can look at single parent families, two parent paychecks, daycare, incredibly busy soccer moms who do nothing but drive their kids and themselves crazy by doing everything they possibly can. Teenagers, so preoccupied with media that they can't ever get their heads up to do their homework. Teachers who once told us not to cheat, now do it for us. Pastors who once were more concerned about our spiritual well-being are now concerned with the bottom line. How many people they get in the door and how many dollars they take out of it. At least... These, these structures that we, we counted on traditionally to provide a certain amount of stability and reinforcement to spiritual truth and biblical guidelines are changing and changing fast. And the consequences of all of this is evident. First of all, it's robbed us of godly models. We just don't have people that we can look at and respect and trust the way we once did. Moreover, it's removed from us the sort of normal hope that we have that the things that we do and the people we go in and out and among think and believe the same things that we do. Because many of them no longer do at all. In fact, many of them are tacitly opposed to it. And the consequences culture-wide, and even in the Christian church, are really evident when you come to think about it. With all this supposed liberty, all this freedom, all the choice that we now have, we have become more deeply enslaved than we ever imagined we might be. Not merely to occasional temptation, 
But the ingrained patterns of sin and unhealthy thoughts and spiritually destructive behavior. In other words, when you're awash in a culture like ours, the greater the chances are that you will be deeply and adversely affected by it. In fact, many of us know that in our own experience. It's come out of our own mouths in prayer. We cried out to God words like this. God, please help me to stop, to stand against this temptation, to resist this sin, to change this habit, to live differently, to be rid of this compulsion, not to fall again, to yield again, or be this way again. Lots of us have prayed like that. And we pray that way because we want our faith to promote change in our lives that is substantial. And it really does, as the scriptures say, make us more Christ-like. But our experience teaches us that we fall repeatedly. So the question naturally arises, you know, how are we to progress against the battle against sin itself when, when it seems so overpowering? And it is in these very verses that Paul provides the answer. And this is what he says. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the full armor of God that you may be able to stand firm against the schemes of the devil. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the powers, against the world forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the full armor of God that you may be able to resist in the evil day And having done everything, to stand firm. Stand firm, therefore, having girded your loins with truth, and having put on the breastplate of righteousness, and having shod your feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace, and in addition to all, taking up the shield of faith, with which you will be able to extinguish all the flaming missiles of the evil one. And take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. With all prayer and petition, pray at all times in the Spirit. And with this in view, be on the alert with all perseverance and petition for all the saints. Here, here Paul lays out the, the way in which we are to engage spiritual warfare. And he assures us that we can stand against the onslaught of our enemy. And this morning I want to look at where he begins. He says, finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. This is really an interesting verse. It seems so simple. But it's amazing what Paul does. Because he divides this verse into two parts. Basically, being strong in the Lord, and being strong in the Lord in the strength of his might. And those two pieces, those two phrases, 
review the entire first three chapters of the book, in which Paul talks about what it means for us to be embraced by God and Jesus Christ in relationship to him, and secondly, what it means to have the very power of God working in our lives. So we'll look at that very briefly. There are no shortcuts to to spiritual victory identified in this larger text. But there's no mystery either. He talks about the things that we are to do, to give ourselves to the word, to prayer, sharing of the gospel, taking up the truths and, and holding them before ourselves as diligently and as carefully as we can. These are well-known paths. As a matter of fact, in the old days, they used to call them the old paths, the old ways. It's like when, when you walk through a forest, you know well-worn path, right? It's, it's down to the dirt. It's tried and true. Everybody knows where it goes. It's safe. It's trustworthy. And Paul says that these are the very things that we are to do in a way that that will change us and promote spiritual growth within us. We know what these ways are. It's reading the Word. It's being in accountable relationships. It's praying. It's, it, it's living out lives of sacrifice and love with those around us. These things and more promote godliness and Christlikeness in our lives. The problem is, is that deep down inside, we know we have this sneaking suspicion that it's not quite enough. If the truth be told, it's not. It's not. If, 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 if all we're depending on is right thinking and right acting, we're going to find ourselves sadly Disappointed. Because Paul says here very clearly that there's something else going on. No matter how good godly patterns are, they do not and they cannot stand on their own. And in fact, they have a context in which they live, and this context is precisely what Paul lays out here. It is being strong in the Lord. It is God's strength. I don't care how many times you read your Bible. Unless the Spirit of God applies it to your life, it's a useless exercise. We know that to be true. And so Paul says, be strong in the Lord. Now, where have you heard that phrase before, in the Lord? It is scattered throughout Paul's epistles, but certainly in the first couple of chapters of this book, because he talks about this new relationship that we have been brought into by the gracious and effectual acting of the Holy Spirit of God to bring us to faith, to grant us a faith that repents of our sin, turns to Jesus Christ, and finds us justified in a right standing with God. And this new relationship is one that is secure, in which we enjoy God's love, His promises, the possession of His Spirit, all the hopes and dreams that are ours. All of these things are true. 
So that when we see our sin, we see our weakness and our failure and our knees grow weak, when we tremble and quake at the idea that other people may see it too, who knows what they'll say, what they'll think. When these things assail us, we can turn right back to the fact that God, who knows all, and knows even more about our sin than we do, loves us, has forgiven it for Christ's sake, and remains faithfully committed to us in his covenant. I read about a five-year-old girl who wanted to play soccer with her much older siblings and cousins at a Thanksgiving Day uh, picnic. And she went outside with them to play, and, you know, in the first couple of minutes, she got knocked down and then trampled by everybody that was older than her. She got up crying and wailing and ran off the field, absolutely determined she was never going to go back out there again. And her father saw her, and he grabbed her, and he took her up in his arms, comforted her for a minute. And then, still holding her, he went back out onto the field and played soccer. And suddenly, as far as she was concerned, she was playing soccer. And she was squealing with delight, and she was aggressive and telling him to get the ball. All the while, held in her father's safe and secure arms. In a similar way, Paul is saying that we gain strength for the spiritual battle that we're in by knowing that we are held safe and secure in the arms of our relationship with God because of what Jesus Christ has done. Nothing can assail that. Nothing can challenge it. Nothing can lessen it. And because that is the case, because our relationship and that love is secure, even though we fail, We can get up again and go forward by the grace of God. This is what Paul means when he urges us to be strong in the Lord, in the security of that relationship. After these words of encouragement, in the second clause, Paul goes on to identify the source of that power, and he calls it the power of his might, meaning the power of God's might. Now, I understand that the scripture is not saying here that somehow, you know, when, when you get to the edge of your ability, God's going to come and just pour in the rest that you need. That's not what he's talking about here at all. God wants us to understand that from the get-go, from the very outset, he is our strength. And in fact, we have none of our own apart from him. Now understand that this word might is used an awful lot in this, this letter too. In fact, we read the, uh, the section verses 15 to 23 in which it is used any number of times. And what it refers to, of course, is God's resurrection power in Jesus Christ. It begins in verse 19 talking about God's incomparably, incomparably great power toward us who believe. Paul describes it as God's working of his mighty power. He goes on to say that God exerted in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly realms. And then he goes on in the beginning of chapter 2 
to say that this power also made us alive in Christ Jesus when we were dead in our transgressions and sins and raised us up and seated us in the heavenly places with Christ. In other words, Paul's referring back to everything that he said in the opening chapters concerning the power of God at work in our lives to change us and fundamentally make us different. And when you look at those chapters, you see some of the most startling things. We who were dead in our transgressions and sins are now made alive. We who used to follow the ways of the world and be enslaved to sin now have been set free. We who were objects of wrath now now are recipients of the inheritance that God has promised for us in Christ. We who are foreigners and aliens have now been drawn near and actually been drawn into his own household, called his sons and his daughters, his children. You begin to see in these, these contrasting terms the, the magnificent change that God has wrought in the hearts and the lives of those who are his. And it is nothing less than the fundamental change of moving from death to life, from slavery to freedom, from the inability to resist sin to the ability to turn from it. That, Paul says, is something we need to understand just as surely as we understand the certainty of his love and relationship to us and our security in it, is that that power is still within us. And is still at work. In fact, in Philippians 1.6, Paul says, The work that I've begun in you will continue until the day of Christ Jesus. It will never stop. And our minds protest, but this is not the way I feel. This is not my experience. I don't feel like I'm able to resist. I've, I've made all these resolutions not to do this or think that or say that again, and then I just fall right down again. Just about as quickly as the words are out of my mouth, I'm doing it. I don't feel like this resurrection power is mine. Do you know why? Because the most powerful vestige of your old nature still continues to haunt you. And it is this. You doubt. You doubt that your old nature has been dealt a death blow and that the new nature and the power of God actually does reside in you today, right now just as surely as it did at the day of your conversion. This is why Paul, as he begins to launch out in this whole thing about how we're to fight spiritual warfare, begins with the most fundamental issues. The relationship that we have with God through Jesus Christ and the indwelling power, the resurrection of Christ's life in us, it is a reality, whether we feel it or not. If you were to be around my house for too long, I could hide it for a while, but pretty soon it would come out. Uh, you would see that there are times when I, uh, 
when I get down on myself and I call myself stupid and I have all these other wonderful names and epithets that, that come flowing out of my mouth. And my wife and family, they get ticked. Well, maybe ticked isn't quite the word, but they very forcefully remind me that I'm not stupid and da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da. And they don't want to hear it. They don't want to hear it. And you know, there's something about the reinforcement of that that helps me. It braces me up, as well as it gives me an encouragement. Because I understand that it's loving. And in many respects, that is precisely what God does in this first verse. The Lord hears us crying, oh, I'm weak and I'm evil and I'm stupid and I'm, you know, I'm this and I'm that and I'm everything else. And God braces us up and lovingly corrects us by saying, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Brethren, your enemy lies to you. Lies to you from the moment you get up to the moment you go to bed. And he tells you that this God does not love you. And this God is impotent to help you. It's a lie. Don't believe it. Believe. Believe Christ. Let's pray. Now, Father, we are uh, we're always in your debt, now and forever. But it doesn't produce a debtor's ethic so much as it produces joy and a response of love to you. And we are grateful, O oh God, this day to have the privilege of loving you, of loving one another and those around us for Christ's sake, for the opportunity to serve you, bear witness to you, to obey you. All of these things because we love you. Protect us, Lord, from our own weaknesses. Especially protect us from the doubt that would draw us away from the truth that you love us deeply and forever in Christ Jesus. And that the power that caused us to be born again it's the same power that is ridding us of sin and will one day cause us to be glorified and to stand perfected in your presence. These things are true. And we ask that you would confirm our spirits, strengthen our resolve, first and foremost, on the basis of these things, all that you are for us in Jesus Christ. For we ask these things in his name. Amen. Thank you.